words for children here. The first is technon, which is from a root word that means to bear or to be born. It's talking about a newborn baby. And the other word he uses is the Greek word padion, and it means little child, and it's used many times in Scripture of an infant. So he's talking here about a newborn baby. He's talking about a very little child when he uses this word. Now, being a little child is not necessarily a bad thing. All of us come into the world as babies. In fact, as far as I can tell, there's no other way to get here. So we have all been little children. And the thing that characterizes a little baby, a little child, is new life. They are fresh. They're newly born. They're alive. That, that's why people come to see them. They weren't here, and now suddenly they're here. They weren't breathing, now they're breathing. They weren't crying, now they're crying. And the same is true of a person who is born again. They are characterized by new life. They are fresh. They are alive. And John says there are really two things that characterize someone at this stage of their spiritual development. The first is, in verse 12, your sins are forgiven. See, that's the first thing we realize when we're born again. I've been forgiven. I'm cleansed. The guilt is gone. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes the journey of a man named Christian. And he starts out mired down in the slew of despond with this heavy burden on his back. And then it describes how he sees the cross in the distance. And he makes his way to the foot of the cross. And when he gets to the foot of the cross, it says the burden falls off his back, rolls down the hill, goes into the sepulcher, and disappears. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The burden of sin rolls away at the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus. And John Bunyan says of Christian, he was glad and lighthearted and merry. That's the experience of the forgiveness of sins. And there's only one place to find it. That's at the foot of the cross where we come into our new birth. And he says, a person at that stage of spiritual maturity, they know that they're forgiven. And then there's a second characteristic. He says, you know the Father in verse 13. Now what's the first thing a little baby gets to know? His parents. That's the first people he recognized. What's the first word a baby usually learns? Mama or dada. And that's the first thing that happens when you come into the family of God. You have a new awareness of God that you didn't have before. And you now call him daddy. See, the first thing that God does in the spiritual life of an individual, is that He reveals Himself to you. Before you were born again, you may have believed in the existence of God, but when you are saved, He goes from out there to in here. He goes from God to Father. Galatians 4.6 says, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is an, Amer an Arabian, an Aramaic word. Let me get that straight. 
An Aramaic word. It's the simplest little word for daddy. It's the word that a baby would learn. Abba. He says the Spirit has come into our hearts, and what does he cause us to do? We call God Abba. Dada. Now, let's be honest. Babies are wonderful, but they're a lot of work. Am I right? Someone has described a baby as a digestive apparatus with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility at the other. When Lindsay was a baby, she was lazy. She would lie around the house all day long. She was also selfish. She wanted what she wanted, when she wanted it, and when she didn't get it, she let you know. And she would scream at us all hours of the night. I mean, she basically acted like a baby. And she was rude. She would burp right in your face (laughs) and not so much as apologize. But you know, the thing that kept me intensely interested in her was that she knew her daddy. And John tells us that's the first thing that happens in our spiritual experience. And you see, you put up with all that other stuff because you know that she's going to grow out of that. Now, if you have a child who's 20 years old and he's still saying, Dada, that's a tragedy. There's an illness there. And I would suggest to you this morning that it is just as tragic when some Christians have been saved for 20 years and all they know is Dada. And by the way, if that's your condition here this morning, you don't have any excuse. There were no complications at birth. When you were born again, you got all that you needed to be all that He has called you to be. When a baby is born, it already has arms and legs and a tongue and ears and eyes. It doesn't get them later. It just needs to develop those things. And the same is true spiritually. You have everything you need at the point where you're born again. You just have to develop. You just have to grow. You just have to go from immaturity to maturity. Second level he mentions is fathers. Verse 13. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And then in verse 14, I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Now, when it comes to fathers, John repeats the exact same thing twice, which tells me that this is important. He wants us to get it. And what is the mark of those who are spiritually mature? Well, he says, you know him who has been from the beginning. Now, who is him who has been from the beginning? Well, he told us in John chapter 1 and verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. See, he's referring here to the Lord Jesus. And so spiritual fathers have come to know the Lord Jesus. 
Now, obviously, spiritual babies know the Lord Jesus because that's the only way they can know the Father. But when he talks here about fathers, the the very name fathers gives us the idea that they've been around longer. So they have a history with God. And the word he uses here in verse 13, to know, is a word that means to know by experience. And so a father is one who has developed a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. He has walked with him over the years and he has proved him to be faithful over and over again. He has a deep, developing, growing relationship, knowledge, understanding of Jesus Christ. He has gone through the fires of life and he has proven God to be faithful every time. See, that's a father. He knows the Lord in an experiential way. His experiential knowledge of the Lord has grown and grown and grown. It's not just intellectual. It's not just I recognize Him. It's a relationship that has been developed through the experiences and trials and struggles of life. That's the mark of maturity. Now it takes 18 to 21 years to move a baby to an adult in the physical maturity area. You know how long it takes to move from a baby to an adult in the spiritual realm? Well, it shouldn't take any more than five years. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because Paul came to Corinth in about 50 A.D. That's when those people were saved. That's when the church was started there. Five years later, he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 3, he says, I'm upset because by now you should be spiritual men. But instead, I have to write to you as babes. You see, if you have been saved five years or more, and you're not a father by now, then you haven't been growing. Now that raises a question. What are the characteristics of a spiritual father? What are the marks that set aside a person who has reached this level of spiritual maturity? Well, let me just mention three this morning. Number one, fathers reproduce. So you're not a father because you're a male. You're, you're a father because you have a child. So the question this morning is, have you given birth to another Christian? If you have never led another person to Jesus Christ, then you're not a father because fathers reproduce. So the question is, how many spiritual kids have you got? Second characteristic is that fathers admonish. I want you to take your Bible and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 just for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14. And really, verses 14 to 21, if you want a more in-depth discussion of what it is to be a spiritual father, Paul talks about that here. But I want to pick out a couple things. First of all, fathers admonish, verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, 
For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Paul says you can have lots of teachers in the Christian experience, but you really only have one father, that person who led you to Christ. And he says, as your father, I admonish you. See, parents admonish children. They're always saying, don't touch that. Don't stay out late. Don't hang around with those kids. And that's what spiritual fathers do as well. They look back to those who are the spiritual children and they admonish them in the things of the Lord. And then the third thing that characterizes fathers is that fathers serve as examples. 1 Corinthians 4, the next verse, verse 16 says, I exhort you therefore, be imitators of me. Spiritual fathers don't say, do as I say, but not as I do. Spiritual fathers live exemplary lives. See, they are people that you, as a younger Christian, can follow. You say, well, I don't follow any man. Well, of course you do. We all follow men. The question is, who is influencing the influencer in your life? See, Paul says, follow me, and then later in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Spiritual fathers ought to be able to say, follow me. Not because I'm perfect, but because I'm further along in the Christian experience than you are. Third category, category is young men. Notice verse 13. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Verse 14, halfway through, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, what is characteristic of young men? Well, young men have a lot of energy. They are strong. Young men do the work. Young men fight the battles. Young men make a difference. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. He says young men are characterized as those who over, have overcome the evil one. So there are three things I want us to point out here about young men. First of all, young men understand the true nature of the struggle of life. They have had their eyes open so that they understand that the struggle is against, as he says twice here, the evil one. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 6.12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our problem is not people. You see, young men have come to realize that. Immature Christians still think their problems are people. Immature Christians say, if so-and-so would just leave me alone, my boss, my mother-in-law, my wife, the IRS, but anyone who has overcome the evil one says this, our struggle is against rulers, against powers, against the forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Young men understand the true nature of the struggle of life. Secondly, young men understand how to be strong. 
You know, when you go to the circus, you can see a 10-ton elephant tied to a little stake, and he stays there. And when you look at it, you go, well, why is that huge elephant tied to that little stake, and why does he not break free? Well, the answer is because when they want an elephant to be in the circus, they take an elephant as a little baby and they tie it to a stake. And it pulls against the stake and it pulls against the stake and it can't get free. And after a while, its elephant memory kicks in. And its memory tells it for the rest of its life, you cannot break free from that little stake. I would suggest to you this morning that some Christians have elephant memories. Some of us are letting Satan tie us down and we don't realize that we have the power to break free. You see, John says here in verse 14 of young men, you are strong. Now how does a young man become strong? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You see, you are not to be strong in your own strength. You are to be strong in His strength. Some of you are going around saying, well, the devil is always defeating me. Well, that's not surprising. Because all he's got to deal with is you, and you're not much competition. You see, we need to learn to be strong in the strength of the Lord. And Paul tells us how that works in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's where God says to Paul, my power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul comes up with a new principle for spiritual power. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, God's power works through our weakness. So the less you rely on yourself, the more capable you become in the spiritual battle. And young men understand that that's how to be strong. And then the third thing about young men is that they understand how to use the right weapon for victory. Did you notice at the end of verse 14 how young men overcome the evil one? It tells us in verse 14, the Word of God abides in you. It's the Word of God. Paul would agree with that in Ephesians chapter 6 when he describes the spiritual armor. There's only one piece of armor that is an offensive weapon. And that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword that we can use to overcome the evil one. Jesus showed us that to us by example. When Satan tempted him in the wilderness, what did he do? He quoted Scripture. He said, it is written. See, God doesn't just want you to come to church to hear a sermon. He wants you to go from here to have a Bible study with the devil. When's the last time you had a Bible study with the devil? He comes and says, here's what you ought to do because of this lie and that half-truth. And what do you do? 
You need to say, no, it is written. See, that's why we memorize Scripture. We don't memorize Scripture to win contests. We memorize Scripture so that we will have that sword, that weapon, ready when the attacks come. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, we've got a lot of voodoo Christianity today. A lot of us think it kind of works like Dracula, you know? Satan shows up and we just hold the Bible up and he's going to run away. Well, it doesn't work that way. You see, John says it's got to abide in you. It's not enough to carry your Bible around with you. You've got to get it in your heart. Those seven brothers in Acts chapter 19 thought they could deal with Satan that way. Remember them? They thought they could cast out demons if they had the right formula. And the demons said, well, Paul we know and Jesus we know, but who are you? You see, they thought it was magic. And there are Christians today who think it's magic. They think, if I can just get the right formula, I'll be okay. But see, that is holy hocus-pocus. In Jude 9, it says that Michael the archangel would not dare bring a railing accusation against the devil. Instead, what did he do? He said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if you'll take the time to look that up, you'll find that that's a quote from Zechariah 3.2. Now, if Jesus combats Satan with Scripture, and if Michael, the most powerful angel, combats Satan with Scripture, then who are you to be out there with these hocus-pocus things trying to fight him off? You see, the only way we deal with him, the only way we can overcome him is when the Word of God abides in us. And young men understand that. So here are the three stages. Having looked at them, let me ask you the question again. What stage are you in? Are you a child? You know that your sins are forgiven and you recognize the Father. Are you a young man in that you have overcome the evil one? Or are you a father with an intimate knowledge of the Lord Jesus and caring for those who are spiritual children? Now I realize as you answer that question that some of you have to acknowledge that you have some growing up to do. So I want to follow that up with another question. How do you get from a child to a young man, to a father. How do you grow in the spiritual life? Well, you know, if your little boy came to you and said, Daddy, I want to grow up to be big like you, how do I do it? What would you say to him? Would you say, well, in order to grow, you need to try harder. You know, son, you need to think more about growing. You need to strain a little bit. You need to go out on the swing set and hang there a while and stretch. No. 
What would you say to your son if he came to you and said, Daddy, how do I grow to be big like you? Well, you would probably say what my mom would say, and that is, eat your vegetables. You see, if you have the proper nourishment and the proper rest and the proper exercise, growth is going to happen. And the same principle applies in the spiritual realm. If you have the proper nourishment and the proper rest and the proper exercise, growth is going to happen. Now, where do you get your spiritual vegetables? Where do you get your nourishment? Well, you get it from the Word of God. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So as we close this morning, let me just remind us of three things we need to be doing with the Word of God. Number one, we need to read it. Do you read the Word of God? I don't mean occasionally. Do you sit down and have a time every day, just like you do when you eat? Do you sit down with the Word of God and read it every day? See, if you don't, you're never going to reach maturity. If you're not reading the Word of God, if you're not feeding on the Word of God, then you're a spiritual anorexic. And you're going to be stunted in your growth. You're going to be unhealthy in your spiritual life. So the first thing we need to do is read it. Did you realize that it only takes 15 minutes a day? 15 minutes a day to read through the entire Bible in a year. 15 minutes a day. That's what? Seven or eight commercial breaks. A day. And you read through the whole Bible. We need to read it. Secondly, we need to study it. We need to dig into the Word of God to find out what it means. And some of you will be capable of doing that individually. Some will prefer to do that with others. That's why we have adult Sunday school classes. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have home Bible studies. So that you can dig in together into the Word of God and understand what it means. We need to read it. We need to study it. And thirdly, we need to apply it. This is where you get your exercise. It's not enough to ask, what does it mean? We have to ask, what does it mean to me? Is there something in this passage that I need to apply to my life? Is God saying something specifically to me here? How does my life measure up? What are the areas in my life that I need to change? See, the Bible is not simply an academic study. It is living and active. God speaks to us in the pages of this book. That's why we call it His Word. That's why it's called the Word of Life. This Word is our spiritual nourishment for growth in the spiritual realm. It's our spiritual milk. It's our spiritual bread. It's our spiritual meat. And it is the spiritual nourishment that will take you from a child to a young man to a father in the spiritual realm. 
I'm going to ask the praise team to come. And I've asked them, kind of on late notice, some of them may not even know this. Because I want them to sing that song again, Breathe. Because if you notice the words to that song, it's talking about Jesus in us, and it's talking about His Word in us. And so as they sing this song, as we join them in singing it this morning, I'll ask you to stand to do that. Let's make this our prayer of passion to the Lord to say, I want your word to be the very breath I breathe. I want your word to be my daily bread every day so that I might grow to be the person God's called me to be. Let's stand together as we sing.